You're listening to Felony Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. The Felony Podcast explores ex-felons that have gone on to launch their own startups. We explore the ups, the downs, the behind-the-bar stories with these founders. Felony Podcast airs every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All right, welcome to another exciting edition of Felony Inc. Podcast. As always, broadcasting live from my living room in beautiful, scenic, southeast Portland, Oregon. In a society that houses the largest inmate population on earth, anything that can be done to curb the recidivism rate is incredibly valuable, and that's what we attempt to do one show at a time and one guest at a time here at Felony Inc. Podcast. As always, is my incredible co-host, Meg Thibodeau. Meg, how are you doing today on this beautiful summer's day? <laughs> I'm doing all right, Dick. I am doing all right. I would argue that the day is a precarious fall one here in July, but uh, I appreciate your consistent positive outlook. It's really a great balance to my uh, my edgy, dark, morose affect. Um, but I'm here for it. I'm here for it. I'm really glad to be here. I'm really excited to talk to our guests today. Yeah, me too. Uh, our guest today is Ashley Doherty, a graduating advocate for FPP, which is the Family Preservation Project. Um, for those that don't know, the Family Preservation Project promotes individual and system level change to reduce the collateral consequences of parental incarceration on children, families, and communities. And uh, Meg and Ashley, you know what's cool about Portland summertime is that before noon, it's wintertime, and then afternoon, it's kind of a, so you get a little bit of both seasons. It's like all year in a day. Yeah. No, we get that one <laughs> I know, sure. the abundance. That's one way to, that's a way to look at it as having a real abundant outlook. Yes, indeed. I'm into it. I'm into it. I mean, you know, it's very, very pretty here. There's plenty of folks probably in Phoenix that would just die for a day like this. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you could have beautiful <laughs> sunny weather every day, but then you have cactuses and rocks outside. If anyone there in Phoenix hears me, I'll trade you. <laughs> So, um, Ashley, uh, you are our fourth guest concerning the FPP. Uh, how are you doing today? Doing pretty good. Yeah. We Thank love you, Family Ashley. Preservation Project. We have yeah. interviewed Brian Lindstrom, the filmmaker oh. of Mothering on the Inside. Um, we have interviewed Jessica Katz, uh, executive director, and we got to speak to Nova Sweet last week, which was really awesome as well. So That's we're excited so cool. to hear your story and your take on this amazing um, organization doing really good work, unfortunately unable to do a lot of work during coronavirus, which is a huge bummer, particularly for the folks on the inside that need this need this organization so much. Uh, would you start for us with just kind of giving us, we'd love to hear your personal stories. So what's your background? Tell us a little bit about what led you to prison. Let's start there with the, the first part with your beginning the first story. Part, the first part, the first part, wherever you feel like it makes sense to start that story. Well, for me, um, it makes sense. You know, I was struggling with alcohol. I was struggling with in an abusive relationship. I, um, I, because of a abusive relationship, emotionally abusive, that I increased my drinking. And I was also a young mother. Um, and I was trying to hold everything together. I was, I enrolled in school, so I was working full time and taking care of my daughter and schooling, but also in this relationship that was not healthy for me. And I increased my drinking and I ended up getting in a drunk driving accident. 
So I was involved in a drunk driving accident and one of my passengers was injured, which led me to being incarcerated. That's that part, you know, I mean, that's, it's, you know, then I, I actually like, I kind of, you know, I sat in the County jail for a long time fighting, you know, trying to figure out what we were going to do with my case. And I ended up getting sentenced to four years for an assault within a drunk driving accident. So that's intense for an accident. That is intense. That's yeah. hardly premeditated crime. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and at the time I have never, like, I didn't know much about the criminal justice system. I didn't know a lot about it. And, and I'm just, I'm sitting there not knowing what, you know, what's going to happen or what things are going to look like. I have a two year old at home and I just, and it was the hardest thing because, because she was actually, um, involved in my, she was in my car when I was driving. And, um, did that increase of, your sentence? With that, that increased, that definitely increased, like that made it, you know, she wasn't the one who got hurt. It doesn't matter. But like, because there was a child in my car that, that made the, made it so much worse because not only was obviously endangering my child and then that, but that made it. So according to the system, she was a victim of my crime. So, um, I wasn't able to see her for a long time. And like, once you get locked up, like, you know, you're in jail for this amount of time. I saw her one time in those nine months. And then the DHS was supposed to keep bringing her back, but there was a miscommunication between the systems, you know, the DHS system and the DOC, they weren't connecting. And I never got to see her again until I got to prison. And I was at Coffee Creek in Wilsonville, but then I had to apply and then appeal the, um, they denied her because she was technically a victim. And um, that's a part of the system that really, really is more detrimental to the kids and the family. Um, because this three-year-old, you know, she just turned three was like, didn't know why she couldn't see her mommy, you know? And um, so I fought it and I finally got to see her, but it was just like that whole big, huge wait time for a young person like that when they just want to know how their mom is doing or their dad or their family, you know, whatever. And so that was, I just bring that in there because, you know, these are two big, huge systems within our, our state. And um, you would think that because there's such heavy systems that they would be able to work together, but DHS was saying, yes, this child needs to see her mother. And then DOC was saying, well, she was a victim, you know? And so it was like, finally, I got to see her. And um, I really, I mean, I guess that's where FPP kind of comes in. Did, was it, was it once you got into FPP that they were able to facilitate you being able to see her and get the kinks worked out? How did that work? Well, I was, because of the accident, her being in my car, DHS was involved heavily. And, um, I had joined, I was in, I was just trying to do anything when I got to Coffee Creek and I realized I have all this time to do. What am I going to do? You know, um, you know, there's different ways to do time. That's for darn sure. You know what I mean? Like, and I was like, I just got to keep my mind busy because I'm someone who just needs to, you know, keep busy. So I joined a class. It was the inside out educational class. And that's where I met Jessica Katz. And I was at that point in time, I was um, dealing with the appeal of the visitation. So she just heard a little bit about my story and she was like, you know, I can help because she knew about DHS. She was able to help me work with the DHS system. And so within that, it wasn't me getting into FEP that made me see her, but like meeting Jessica Katz, like she helped me work out the kinks so that honestly, my whole out, my whole outcome changed immensely. Like I know that I was going to get visits without this program because I am blessed enough to have family close by and I live, you know, right down the street from the prison that my family could bring my daughter to see me once we were approved. 
Um, but DHS at that time was still trying to terminate my rights. And so when I met Jessica and we started talking about the program and then it was in that time period that I got to, you know, got to start seeing Sophia, her name's Sophia. Um, on, a, you know, my parents were bringing her once a week, but then I was still dealing with this very traumatic DHS case that was ripping my, my family's lives apart, you know, tearing apart everything about them because they're very strict on who can be a caregiver for the child. And because my dad has a, a couple DUIs in his past from, you know, years and years ago, they denied them being caregivers for my child, which is just, it's just lots of stupid in the system. Um, but because of Jessica and the family preservation project, because when you're locked up, you can't just pick up a phone call and call your attorney and say, Hey, I, I'm going to push nut button five to, you know, you can't just do that. I actually literally, I had my DHS caseworker trying to be helpful send me in the mail at prison a phone card. Now you can't use phone cards in prison. Now this DHS, I mean, this DHS person, this caseworker, she had no clue. And that's where it's like these two huge systems, they need to be working together. Like she doesn't even know that they can't use a, you know, so, but because of all that, and like I had the help of Jessica and the Found Preservation Project to write emails to stay involved with my DHS case so that it wasn't going to termination because very easily they could have, if I had not had, you know, the help, I definitely think that's what would have happened. So from me getting into FPP in a six month um, time period, they went from termination of rights. So that was what they were going for at first termination of rights. And then they went to a durable guardianship. So she was able to have stay with, you know, a foster family that's family and my rights weren't terminated just because of that drug driving accident, you know? And so there's just like so much that's tied into it. Were you offered any kind of treatment? <laughs> oh, I know. I, I know. It's I, a weird question. <laughs> I mean, I guess I it's just like, it's so hard to hear these stories. I mean, it's just so consistently happening in this system that a situation where you are not a malicious malevolent injurer of people but someone having an a, a, an addiction issue that ends up in a situation where for all practical purposes your daughter is then criminalized like it just your three-year-old daughter suffers the consequences I mean, it's so traumatic for a young child like that who does not understand where mom's gone to have mom just disappear. There's just no getting around that. And do we really want a future full of children who have been so profoundly traumatized? It's just, it's frustrating. It's um, how old is Sophia now? She's, well, she'll be uh, 12 on the 10th of July. So, I mean, and the thing about asking, you know, was I offered treatment, you know, I guess they really wanted to throw the book at me. They want to make an example out of me. And I don't know. There's just so much. I was still learning about the system back then. But I had to sign a plea bargain for four years, no chance of early release, or go to trial. And this was an ultimatum right. that was brought to me by my attorney's assistant, not even my actual attorney, saying you have to sign this plea bargain or you're going to trial. And then I could have gotten, you no. Know, they could have. They, they That's what they do. They scare you. They put the fear and... um because I knew I did, I know I was in the wrong. I was drunk driving. I know that part, you know, and, and there was lots more to it. And also like, I also didn't feel like four years in prison was what 
I needed. I didn't need that shit. Honestly, like it really made matters worse. You know, I mean, right. prison does not rehabilitate and heal. It really doesn't as much as people want to think as much as I thought that that's what it was for before I got involved with any of this. You know, I was like, yeah, people go to prison to get help. I was at the signing of the plea bargain and um, I had written a letter that I wanted to read to the judge just so they could get a little bit more. All they know was, you know, they could only see what was written on the paper was what I was being charged with. And, you know, and, and the ugly parts of it. And so I basically wrote a letter spilling out my heart saying, you know, I understand what I did was horribly wrong. And I am willing to, you know, I want to take responsibility and all that. And also I would love to have a chance at getting early release with treatment. I was like, I really want to get the help. I need the help. And I want to be a mom to my daughter. And I want to have a chance at being home to her um, before she's six. Cause at that point, you know, she would have been six and I was begging for AIP alternative incarceration program. So that while I was incarcerated that I could get treatment cause they have some treatment programs there and then potentially be, be released early. Um, so after I finished reading that letter, the judge said, um, well, you definitely need to get help. You, you know, you're going to prison and you're not going to get early released. You're probably always going to be a drunk and your daughter will probably end up being a drunk just like you. Wow. You're like, kid you not. And, um, and I was like taken aback and I was like, literally, yeah, like my jaw was dropped, like dropped. I'm like a judge to say that to a person. Um, and so that's have, that's definitely had a fire under my butt for, <laughs> for a long time. And it's really cool because my daughter knows that story. And, and I mean, I, it's just the horriblest thing for a judge to say that someone's kids, but here's the thing, lots of kids whose parents go to prison. You know what? That's intergenerate intergeneration intergenerational incarceration. Sorry. Um, and it does happen, but for you to say that I'm probably always going to be a drunk and my daughter will too. And you're not getting out early because you know, why waste it on you? Like that was, you know, as devastating as that was, I've never forgotten that. And, um, I'm never going to, never going to let that be, you know what I mean? Like I'm never going to let what they said dictate where I'm going to go in my life or my daughter for that matter. Um, There's a way that something like that can motivate some of us to do even better. So thank you to that judge. Also, yeah. that level of of jaded, uh, cynical misery has no place in the world of helping and healing human beings. It just doesn't. It's so, so unfair. How do you talk to your daughter about like, where does she stand? I'm, I'm guessing you're very open with her about your prison experience and, and how do you talk to her and how does she, um, how does she navigate that arena right now at 12 <clears throat> years old? Well, it's, you know, I've been very much, um, I'm going to be honest with my daughter. Like, this is what I've been through. This is where I'm at. And this is what it is now. You know, I share my experience, strength and hope. And I tell her, you know, I didn't want to lie to her and say I was in school because that's what, you know, oh, she's at school. You know, like, no, no, no. Like in an age appropriate way, because of the family preservation project, I learned how to talk to my daughter about these things in honesty, but in an age appropriate manner. So, you know, back then it was like mommy's in a timeout, you know, mommy did something bad. And, and as we got older, you know, her first memories of me, honestly, are in the family preservation project which it, as sad as it can be, it's also an amazing gift, you know? Um, 
she grew up with other kids. You know, she got to know other kids who were going through the exact same experience. And that for youth to know that they're not the only one with a parent locked up is huge. Because let me tell you, like, and I told her this, you know, when I got out, I'm like, there's so many kids in your class who dealt with this or have, they just don't talk about it. We just don't talk about these things. And so for me, you know, I just want her to never feel like she couldn't talk about it. Like, I didn't want her to be ashamed that I was, you know, I'm like, yeah, I've been to prison and also look what I'm doing now, you know? Yeah. And, and, um, so honestly, I don't know. She blows me away these days, this past six months with everything that's gone on. She's very much like we've all done advocacy work, you know, the family preservation project, the families come together. We've done, we've done like, you know, speaking to judges, just knowledge, knowledge so that they know, you know, I've talked to judges about how the connect, you know, the disconnect between the systems, like we have to get this, put this together to help out the kids and help healing and all that. And um, she's joined with a lot of those, but right now she is on fire with like advocacy work. And she's just like, she's using her social media and she's using her voice in an amazing way against racism, against uh, just, you know, she's very much speaking her mind and using her voice. And I am just so freaking proud. She actually said to me a couple weeks ago, she said, she actually asked, she's like, well, what did that judge say to you that one time? I'm going to show him wrong. So as much as like the horribleness of what that judge said, the fact that, you know, she's heard this story and she knows about it and she knows that I still talk about it. Like, and then for her to be like, I'm going to prove him wrong in your face, you know, mm-hmm. so I'm so proud of how she's able well, that's to. You. That's your example. That's what you've been able to do by taking your own life into your own hands, you know, seeking out and finding the help you needed being able to get involved, you know, the family preservation project is a great project. And also, I think, you know, we find what we need when we need it. So the credit also goes to you. You should be really proud of yourself. It sounds like she's really proud of you, too. Thank you. Thank you. What was that moment for you um, in the family preservation? Like, where was the moment? Was it when you got arrested? Was it where was the moment where you decided you're going to be sober? You're going to be sound? you're going to do things differently. It, uh, it definitely wasn't when I got arrested. Um, <clears throat> and this is why I know, like, I know that I needed a timeout. I needed a timeout. You know what I mean? Cause when I got arrested, like I was so much into my addiction that, you know, I was like, I'm just going to get out and do treatment and then I will go back to drinking again. That, that was where my mind was at at then because I'm an alcoholic, you know, and that's, and it's not the same with everybody. And I'm not, you know, this is my experience, but, um, I remember being incarcerated at the jail and that's what, that was my thought. I was like, I'm going to get out, you know, and I'll just do good for a while and then I can go back to it. And then it probably took about, it was a little bit before I got to coffee Creek that I started attending alcoholics anonymous anonymous meetings in the jail. Um, initially like just to get out of my cell, I wanted to do something. Um, but that's when I started listening, listening to the stories and reading, you know, out of the book. And I really started to think that, Hey, maybe recovery is something that I could do. You know what I mean? And like that I didn't have to go back to drinking because my life wouldn't be over if I never drank again, you know, and it's, and it's not even a big deal anymore. I just don't drink, you know? And, um, so it was, it was probably about six months in. So it took me six months of being sober for my mind to kind of, you know, to, and the resources, because if it wasn't for AA meetings there, would my, would my head have changed? Would I kept thinking I'll get out and do it? You know, um, there was, I don't know, I guess really at the time when I decided that it was when I got the hope, 
the hope is what made me realize that I didn't need to stay being a drunk. It was finding hope with other amazing women in there that are dealing with the same things I am. Jessica Katz like was massively motivator for me just um, wanting to do better because she, she had faith in me. And I, at that point I had no faith, you know, I was like, I had ruined everything, you know, and that's where I was at. And so getting hope is where I was like, you know, having that sense of hope was like, okay, you know, I can put in the work and do something different. Now, uh, Ashley, just out of curiosity, we've, we've done a couple of interviews now, obviously with FPP, but um, when you're in prison and you have, obviously you have a daughter and stuff, how do you get involved with that FPP? What's that process like? We, I've never actually heard that yet. So I'm just kind of curious oh, yeah. for people listening, how do you get involved with it? How do you become accepted into it? So it's pretty much a very widely known program at the prison, um, <clears throat> word of mouth. You know, there's a lot of women there and they talk to each other and that's really how people hear about it. And then, I mean, since I was pretty fresh at the, at Coffee Creek back then, when I met Jessica Katz, that's the first time I had heard about it. And then you like do a little application and it, you know, it depends on if you have how much time you have left if you have good behavior, there's different guidelines, like, you know, because lots of people want this, lots of people need this program, but the, um, we're only, you know, the inmates call it the 1% inside of coffee Creek, which is super hilarious. The 1% is the family preservation project because they get free calls and lots of visits and. Oh, nice. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and yeah, the the 1%, exactly. And so, I remember not knowing if I was going to get in and applied and I knew other people had applied and it was just like sitting on pins and needles because, but they go by different things. How much time you have left, how much DHS involvement, if you, if your family really needs the help, if, cause I mean, while my family was very much involved and I was getting visits without FPP, but I wasn't getting the DHS support and the help. And like, so there's different, different things weigh out differently. Um, but it's an application and then, but Jessica's pretty amazing. Jessica and all the women there are pretty amazing at um, picking out who is, whose family is going to need this the most. And it's, I mean, that's hard. That's hard. You can't, you know, like we all need it. I don't know. I can't even say that. Like, how do you even pick? But um, it's an application process. It goes by how much time you have left. If you've been on good behavior, how old your kids are, because they have to be under a certain age. So, and then they do the hard choice. You know, she has to go through the applications and make, decide whose life she's going to change. Like how hard would that be? Like so hey, hard. Yeah. Like I just can't even understand. So I am. Well, I think there's 10 or 12 or something that are allowed in each class. And it's not, they're not huge. Oh yeah. oh yeah. Like 10 to 12. And I mean, when I was there it was about 12, but I think it scaled it down a little bit. I mean, obviously now it's like, I'm just, everything that's going on now in the prisons um, my daughter's father is locked up right now. And whenever I'm like stressed out about this COVID stuff or my work is just stressing me out and I don't like my job. And I just remember like, you know, I just got to think of what they're going through. Like they got all their visits taken away. You know, these kids don't understand COVID-19. They don't understand that they're, you know what I mean? Like everything just got taken away this year from them. And I just, it makes me so sad. So sad. So they, they understand part of COVID-19. They, you know, kids can sense that there's something absolutely awry with the world. And so it's even worse. They don't have the comfort of connection with their parents. So they must just be 
be feeling terrifically unmoored. And that is just such a break in our system. It sure is. You know, uh, one thing for me when I was in jail, uh, I really realized like being in jail, for instance, kind of lets you know things that you take for granted hugely on a regular basis, which you would never imagine. Yeah, (laughs) privacy. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, it's the main things. For me, one of the main things that really kind of shook me to my core was how much I appreciate and didn't know I appreciated just having ice and ice cubes and, and beverages and stuff like that. So, I mean, ever since I've been out, I drink, I, I use ice with everything I can possibly think of. We had ice machines in my prison. I guess, I guess the feds really are club, club fed. <laughs> the feds you don't have ice food. machines, yeah. Yeah. Y'all not really, really, you didn't have ice in prison? The only time, I, only time I got ice was in Land County uh, when I was in Max 1, and that was uh, with the powdered milk for breakfast. There would be ice Ooh, cubes and milk. Good grief. <laughs> just to yeah, add just no, the water and add a little, a little more. I don't know how you made your garbage can fudge without ice. <laughs> I guess I At Coffee Creek, though, it was during my third year there. So, um, like, 2014, it was a really big deal. They got ice machines. And it was like, oh, we get ice. And it was yeah. like, there was literally lines for the ice machine. And with your pitcher. And, like, and you would wait in that line because then the ice machine would run out of ice. And so we're like, oh, now we have to wait until it reloads. But, like, really, ice was like... Yes, oh, I had it good. <laughs> yeah. to, to this to this day, if I ever make a million dollars, I always tell myself I'm going to buy an ice machine for my house, like a professional hotel industrial size one. Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> I have one I might be able to hook you up with, man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Let's All talk right. about uh, the, the, the whole reason why I bring this up is, Ashley, during the interview, you said that um, one of the big moments for you was when you were able to, in the FPP visit, um, make your daughter a peanut butter and jelly sandwich on a visit. And that was really a huge thing for you. Um, would you care to elaborate on that at all? Uh, absolutely. Um, before, before I went away, I was there every day with my daughter. You know, I was, I was mommy, you know, and I did those little things. I, you know, I changed her diaper and I took her, you know, and I made her sandwiches. And, and those are the things that was just like, you know, you, you just got to do it. You're a parent. You're doing it. And then when I was incarcerated, um, those are the, like, just realizing, like, I didn't have any opportunities to do that. You know, in regular visiting, they have a, a vending machine. So I started, you know, like, my parents could go to the vending machines and we could get snacks. But it was like, when I got to make lunch with her and then sit with her and eat a meal as opposed to just chips and drinks, you know, I mean, it was just like, me being able to do that mom action of putting the peanut butter, you know, helping her put this peanut butter on there. I mean, it was just huge. And then, and then being able to take her to the potty, like, cause it was just that time, you know, and she was like, Oh my gosh, you know, learning how to do it and all that. And I could help her with that because in regular visiting, you don't get to, and I haven't, you know, and that's my baby. And so just those little tiny things are what like, you know, is where I felt it the most in my heart. Yeah, Those visits are really special with the FPP because they really, they're free of, of the guards. You know, the regular visits, people just don't realize how you have to get up and stand up for count and your baby's crying and doesn't understand why you're standing over there and not over here. I mean, there's so many, like you can't, you can't take your baby to the bathroom. You can't, there's so many things you're so limited and it's really hard. It's hard for a kid to understand they can see you now for this limited amount of time, but they can't actually interact with you in the way that 
that they need to. And that's really, really hard. And FPP is able to offer an environment. And wasn't it, will you tell us more about that? So it was, I think it's every Saturday or you guys got a weekly visit, right? Where you got to spend real time without COs with your kid doing activities, right? So it was a twice monthly therapeutic visits, about three hours, at least when I was there, it was three hours in a separate area, not in the visiting room. So it's a carpeted room and you you have the table set up, you know, you do that the night before. So then, you know, your kid can draw on it and every, you know, the room's all set up like a little classroom. There's books and toys and, and having like, you were able to relax, you know, because it does feel like a classroom atmosphere more than a prison atmosphere. And visiting the visiting rooms are very different. Like you said, they're very stale. You have to follow the rules of this rule. And like, you can only, you know, if your kid's I don't know, over a certain age, most COs, you know, you could hug at the beginning and that's it. And then hug at the end. And your kid just wants to be with you. You know, they want to hold you and I want to hold her and FPP, you were able to do that. We could lay on the floor on blankets and read a book, you you know, and so it was every other Saturday and, you know, and those kids, like they look forward to that and us moms too. But I mean, it's, I'm more about like how my daughter was able to look forward to this awesome visit and have that time because you can't, honestly, in my opinion, there's no healing that's going to go on in visiting rooms in the prisons. Um, At least not with children because children can't let their walls down when it is that atmosphere. And, you know, I don't think so. Not from my opinion. Um, I think that having a space where, you can cuddle or you can cry and be okay. My daughter threw some horrid tantrums. Oh my goodness. It was very entertaining, but like, guess what? I got to be mom and I got to sit with that. And like, I had other moms in that room of FPP, like supporting me and like in the visiting room, it would just be like, you got to stop. You know what I mean? And so we were able to work through some things instead of just shut it down. So there was actual heal going on in that room and in that whole program. That's so sweet. So we need to take a quick break to run an ad and pay some bills. And we'll be right back. This hour of the Startup Radio Network is supported by Bridges to Change. Bridges to Change's mission is to strengthen individuals and families affected by addictions, mental health, poverty, and homelessness. They use their voice and resources to stand up to all forms of discrimination, mass incarceration, barriers to health care, and inequitable economic opportunities. Bridges to Change's goal is to empower people to be self-sufficient and become members of the community, who in turn offer the same opportunities to help others. They strive to have everyone leaving their organization with stable housing, social support, sustainable employment, education, access to health care, family engagement, and goals for the future. To get involved, donate, or to get help, make sure to visit www.bridgestochange.com. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Filling Podcast. If you're just joining us, our guest today is Ashley Doherty, a graduate advocate for Family Preservation Project. Um, Ashley, in July 2017, Senate Bill 241, the Bill of Rights of Children, or, or for children of incarcerated parents, was passed by the legislature making Oregon the first state to recognize the rights of mothers and children. Um, since then, it's been kind of a uphill battle uh, getting more funding. And actually, a year ago, July 2019, 
you spearheaded a GoFundMe organized uh, event fundraiser, fundraiser, which actually raised almost one hundred sixty thousand um, dollars. Could you tell me a little bit more about this? Well, oh, I mean, I guess it kind of starts where they defunded. You know, they cut FPP, the Family Preservation Project, when I was being released, and that's when Brian Lindstrom made Mothering Inside. It, it was all during that time period, and. Um, and so us freshly released, um, who had, we were fighting, we were fighting to keep that program actually to open it back up because they shut it down. And, and then that's when we, around the same time, um, did the work for the Bill of Rights for Children of Incarcerated Parents. But that work, it was, it was hard to do because it's just like, it, uh, for me, it's just like, not hard, not hard, like hard, but it's hard because it's like, how do people not see that this stuff is needed? How do people not see that like kids need, you know, they can't just break their bonds with their parents because they're gone to prison. You know, they need to have rights too. They have rights to know where their parent is and to be able to touch their parent and stuff. And, and so while um, the family preservation project is a big program that does a lot of big healing things, it's the 1%. Now the bill of rights for children of incarcerated parents, you know, we want to cover more than 1%. We want to, have rights and things built on for anyone impacted by incarceration, especially the youth. And um, so, you know, going to the legislature and sharing our experiences and our children's experiences, you know, to make change for other kids, that was huge. I mean, but like I said, for me, it's just like, how do you not see that these kids deserve this? Um, But, you know, I mean, the work's hard because, you hash up your old stuff, you know? I mean, I have to talk about, you know, like this is a great conversation. We're flowing and stuff like that. But it just seems like the, you know, when you go to the building in Salem, it's, you know, it's also formal and there's judges and there's, you know, it just, it reminds me of, you know, institutionalized things and it gives me anxiety. And so um, every time, you know, we go to do that, we're putting ourselves out there, but it's for a good cause. And so I'm always, you know, I'll put myself, and discomfort if it's going to make, you know, if I'm going to help impact anything, anywhere, any one little thing. Because, I mean, what else What else do I got? I just got to keep giving back is how I think, you know. And the Bill of Rights for Children of Incarcerated Parents is something that needed to happen. And, you know, the actual changes going with it, some are slow. But um, the work is moving, you know, and that's we just got to keep working. Absolutely. Um, so you've so far raised one hundred fifty-eight thousand dollars. I didn't even talk about that. I'm sorry. And then, okay. So yes, <laughs> it's okay. The girl found me. Um, I was interning, doing some practicum hours at the YWCA, and um, and it was it was I very uncomfortable. I I don't like social media. Like I mean, I I'm on it. But when I have to like use a voice for like a bigger organization, like the YWCA or FPP, I like, I don't, I like overthink it. And so that's, that was really hard to like get comfortable with using um, YWCA's name and going on the Twitter and the Facebook and the Instagram, trying to like push this, you know, and sending emails, talking for an organization bigger than me, because I don't want to, you know, say the wrong thing or whatever. But um, I pushed through that discomfort of, you know, my, social media stupidity or whatever and um reaching out and raising that money to keep that program going because basically they we didn't know if it was going to go 
I mean, we had the funding, it stopped. And then there was funding for another year. And the YWCA came up with so much money from so many amazing organizations. And, um, and so then we were just doing our little parts, you know, like fundraisers here and, you know, putting it on blast, but raising that money. Like when I found out how much we raised and how, like, like that's just amazing. You know, that like people, yeah. there is so many people that have kindness in their heart that want to help others. And um, I saw a lot of that. So that really kind of gave me a little more hope of people in society because people did want to help. People did want to keep this program going, but like you just, we have to share about it. We have to talk about it. People don't know about the impacts that people have, you know, while they're locked up. People don't know that how detrimental it is to the family and the youth and the community. And um, so I think that every little like bit that we tell of our experiences that really helps because it's, you know, people were seeing where there's disconnects and where we need to put them together. So people were able to see how amazing this program was. And I mean, how much did we raise? We raised a lot of money. Yeah, that's a hell of a lot of money, actually. $158,000. And I mean, it's incredible. And it shows that people really are paying attention to this. And uh, I mean, it's just one of those things you really have to put yourself out there and utilize social media, utilize networks, and just go for broke essentially because that's an extremely impressive number um you know uh another thing that i was thinking about and also if people want to donate let me just throw that out right now they can go to ywcapdx.org uh, and donate on that site correct yes yes <laughs> um uh, basically another thing i found online about you is uh you were at the i think going legislature with the author uh, Piper Kerman, uh, she was the author of Orange is the New Black. And one of the things that I found was interesting was she talked about um, there's been a 650% increase in female incarceration over the past 40 years, uh, which makes women the fastest growing uh, part of the prison industrial complex. Uh, were you aware of that? Um, yes, I was. <laughs> that, that, that it changed that quick. I mean, that, it's crazy because women have tripled uh, women, the current number of women incarcerated, the number has tripled within the last 20 years, even though crimes have remained exactly the same uh, statistically, uh, which shows that they're kind of authoring um, laws and having more and more judges like the judge that you experienced that are figuring that prison is probably more of a, a beneficial thing to women and families than treatment and, um, you know, things that would actually benefit society. It's kind of the trend that I wonder I'm how much right the war on drugs has to do with oh. that as well. Women are, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> women and, are and involved. It's so, I mean, there's just been so much crap that's gone on in the system. I mean, yes, the war on, oh, the war on drugs, the war on crime, and like how we need to fix it, and, and, and fixing is prison, and that's not really that's not really doing anything um i don't really want to you know go on any tangents but i'll just say that like how many companies are making money you know it's a prison industrial complex how many companies are making money off of people being locked up and man mandatory minimums are you know even if my judge if if, it, if there's a man mandatory minimum crime that's you know someone is being charged with the judge doesn't have any say you know what i mean they can't you know oh well you have to do this time it doesn't matter any of the circumstances. So mandatory minimums, like just jacked up so many, so many prison rates, you know, and, um, and we're, 
it's not really, you know, and we haven't done any prison reform. We need to freaking do prison reform. And it's just, you know, it's not going on enough. Enough. You can't really even pretend that prison is about rehabilitation anymore. I say what, what some of us are able to get from that experience is despite rather than because of the system. So folks like you where that judge says something to you that you're going to be a drunk and you have a personality where you're going to go, oh, hell no, I'm going to prove you wrong, right? Yeah. Um, and and that exists. I know that was the same for me. I was just like, oh, no, you're not going to take me. I will do whatever I can do. And that is not the case for everyone. There, you know, I didn't have intergenerational imprisonment and things like that. You know, I was less oppressed than other people that when in that that are part of the system that the system becomes an integral part of their lives. So, you know, we just can't pretend anymore that there's any part of this system that wants people to succeed. The system wants people to keep prisons in profits and wants to keep people of color out of the voting blocks. I mean, that's just exactly. all there is to it. Yep. Yeah. So, what's cool about Family Preservation Project is they have chosen to focus on the children, which engenders compassion in a way that helping criminals just doesn't seem to do for people. People are really under the impression that if you let everyone out of jail, the streets will be riddled with crime. When in fact, if you reallocate those funds to treatment for the mass amount of addiction, poverty, classism, racism, all of the different things that we have plaguing our society, we would likely have a lot less crime. Attack it at the root. Yeah, you anyway. know, it's like, and ha I don't know, and I've watched, let's see, Brian Lindstrong has the other um, documentary, or a few other, but Alien, Alien Boy, I watched that. Oh, Alien Boy. Alien Boy, <laughs> I watched that, and, like, I watched it just a few weeks ago when it was aired, and, like, that hit me very hard, and I've, I knew what it was about, and I have heard about it, and I've always wanted to watch it, but I watched it, and it was just a few weeks ago, and it just hit me so hard because of where we're at right now in our country, and for, like, yeah, I don't know the brutality that goes on in within the system, not just actual cop on people, but like within the system also. That's a whole nother kind of brutality, you know. Like it's reach, it's traumatizing people in a whole nother way that is going to affect them the whole rest of their lives. Um, you know, with the mental health, like how many people incarcerated have mental health issues, you know, and are they getting any kind I of mental health? Hundred percent, you know, yeah. like yeah. Um, if you don't have mental health issues before you go in, which you probably do, you're going to have mental health issues when you come out. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that definitely like, you know, my, my anxiety definitely, you know, quadrupled while in there. And it's something that I've had to be keep on working with. And, and it's not easy, you know, now I can only imagine for people who are with, with more severe mental health issues, because prison is, going to exacerbate it that much more, of course. Um, and then they're going to be released onto the street where they don't have any resources because they weren't able to heal and build resources while they were locked up because all you're doing is being caged. Like, that's just, you're being warehoused. People are being warehoused and we're paying for that. And time. traumatized. And traumatized. Absolutely. Right. Right. Yeah. It's not a helpful system. It's super, it's, and it's just the lie is right in our face, you know, that we're being told that this actually helps with crime rates. But the statistics very clearly say it doesn't. The 
outcome very, very clearly says it doesn't. And the system is set up actually so a few people get rich while costing the people and the taxpayers. What is it? We just looked at it the other day, Dick. It's like, is it trillions? I mean, it's just utterly fucking (laughs) insane. Insane. Like, absolute wealth that is going somewhere that other than the help and health of our people. Yep. It's it's a crazy number. And I, I, I wanted to delve more into that number to see if that included like judges, attorneys, court proceedings, you know, the ripple effect of families, childcare, you, you know, you name it. Like it's, it's probably if you really were to take everything. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. I mean, if you really were to take everything into consideration. Effect. Yeah, the ways that families and extended families, and then like we were talking about intergenerational prison, like incarceration and trauma and all those things, it's probably incalculable the economic impact that just having prisons and I would say a police system, rather than having um, devoted organizations that really work to help people feel safe and held. I mean, uh, I could just really go on and on clearly, but you know, it's, it's so hard. It's just like <laughs> people not see this because you know you're paying this much to keep someone incarcerated. Well, you could pay way less than that to get them the help that they need. Right. But our system is like, no, let's lock them up. You know, and it, it's fear and racism and classism. Yeah, you know, exactly. It's very very clear that it's about keeping people oppressed. So mm-hmm. that I'm, I feel really grateful that we're living in a time where folks are standing up for that. So there is, there is hopefully hope. Yes. Yeah. It, it definitely appears that there could be a light at the end of the tunnel around the horizon right now, at least. And it might uh, not be a train. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Let's hope not. I mean, who knows, yeah. but yeah, we'll see. I, you know, just keep praying that like, you know, it's going to keep moving in the right direction and because like you said, oh, like, like you said, like I myself was definitely, I, you know, impressed in some ways, but definitely not nearly as impre- oppressed as many of the people that I was incarcerated with. And like, and I could see that. And, you know, so I had, I have, you know, my privilege and I was able to get, you know, resources and I had family that was helping out. And it's just, you know, there's, I was, you know, I was one of the lucky ones that like, I don't know. The system is so, I just can't even, sorry. I just like the system is just so fucked up. <laughs> so fucked it's up. Why we, it's why you tell your story. It's why we do what we do. It's just the hope is that enough people can hear enough stories from people that they relate to that in, you know, in our case, the people with the wealth and power, privileged white people, when they look at at least our white faces, maybe they say, Oh, Wow you know, those people are kind of like me, right? Maybe if those, if someone like me is in prison, maybe I can have compassion. And that's so upsetting that people, it's so hard to have compassion for folks that might look different than you. But we all know the stories and narratives that have been systemically, you know, in in brainwashed into us that, well, you know, you should have thought of that before you committed a crime yeah. or whatever the narratives are that people have ingrained. It's so much easier to discount entire populations of people than it is to wonder if the bad people, quote unquote, bad people might actually be like you, right? People so badly want to insulate themselves from feeling that they are part of a problem. 
And of course, that's a problem. But, you know, with more education and, and the ability to have compassion to hear stories from people that they like and can relate to, I think it's really powerful, powerful work. So I'm sure glad you're doing it. It's, it's helpful. It means something to tell that story. Thank you. Because I mean, and, that, and that's the one thing I got a lot of because I am not ashamed. I mean, I'm not scared to say, yeah, I've been to prison, you know, and because I've gotten so much people like, oh, you've been to prison? Like what? What? Because somebody who's smiling, white, pretty, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Like, yeah, yeah anyone, can, you know, so that, that's actually a big piece of it is, you know, I'm sharing my story because I also have friends who were incarcerated and they don't talk about it. It doesn't get talked about. We keep it quiet. You know what I mean? Like we don't talk about it in public. So, you know, I respect everyone's how they want to do it, but I, this is how I need to use my experience. I need to do it like this because yes, you know, I've been to prison and oh my gosh, people are like, Oh, I wouldn't expect you. Like, what does that even mean? Someone like me? Like, what does that mean? We, we know what it means. Um, oh, Ashley, man. so, uh, in February, uh, the family, the FPP attempted to go to the legislature to, uh, get more funding, um, for the project. Of course, that was derailed <laughs> by COVID-19. Um, were you a part of that? Did you go down there and attempt to get so, funding for FPP? Yeah, we were, we were, you know, doing some, trying to get some funding and it was not only, um, interrupted by COVID, but also by some walkouts that were done when we were supposed to be our, you know, stuff was supposed to be heard, but there was the political walkouts. Um, so that, you know, and then obviously COVID happened and nothing happened, but, um, yeah, it, it was, it's pretty, it's, you know, we went to meetings and we were, you know, we went to a few meetings, talked to different legislatures and it, you know, and, um, and so then it was just really hard when like, it didn't even get to get heard. Our bill didn't even get to get heard. It wasn't even just because of the walkouts and then COVID. And so it was like all this work. And then honestly, since it's all happening, I'm just like, I'm just so sad for the families in there. And that's all I could think about when I'm like thinking about this. I'm like, you know, and now what, what's going to happen? You know, are we just going to keep having to fight? You know, I was really hoping we were going to have, you know, we, this bill, it was looking pretty good. It was going to have, you know, more years, more than two years of funding, which is what it's been every two years. So we keep going back and having to fight for it, but it was going to be I think four or eight years. It was like, cool. We're going to be able to sit down and breathe for a second on this, on this actual topic and go do other advocacy work. You know what I mean? And go do bigger stuff, but everything was derailed this year. So <laughs> just keep trying to do the next right thing. And the next thing in front of me and yeah, it's frustrating. Absolutely. Is now is there a date set for like another uh, appeal or you know, any kind of process going on, or is everything up in the air right now until everything gets sorted out with COVID? In the air right now, um, there was a phone conversation oh, probably last month, and just basically that you know, I mean, nothing's nothing's moving anywhere in the at the state right now. So, I mean, we'll we'll hear more. Things are moving, but not you know for us. So. I don't know if we're going to get a special session to hear, you know, cause it, they need to figure out the budget thing still. They can't just lose everything. But honestly, this year has been so obviously up in the air for a lot of things. Yeah. Everything's kind of an afterthought. Yeah. Um, so hypothetically speaking, um, where would you like to see the FPP maybe like in the next five, 10 years from now, uh, oh. ideally? 
I mean, oh, ideally, oh, let's talk big then. I mean, yes. I would love to have it available for anyone who desires to get the help. You know, and I know that's shooting real big, but like getting it into other facilities. I mean, I um, I strongly believe that this is where it needs to be right now is at the women's prison. I'm not trying to discount any men and their, you know, fathers. Like I really would love it to have it in the father's prisons as well so that the kids could have it, you know, the youth could get that with both the fathers and the mothers. But um, I really would love, like, I'm going to be, I'll be graduating. And so before, you know, five to 10 years, I will have my master's and I will be able to go into the prison and do the thing that was so amazing for me, for someone else. And I want to be able to do that instead of a group of 10 to 12, how about a group of 50 to 100? And maybe not all this, you know, just like bigger capacity. But really, um, it would be cool if prison reform started to work out. And so maybe we could, this is where like, I love FPP and it's, it's needed because our incarceration rates are horrid. But um, also, I think that we should have, we should have things that are going to change the path. We have to do it before, you know what I mean? Like, let's get more services. Let's get some rehabilitation let's get some stick you know like youth groups let's get more services for the people so that we don't have to end up in prison and then funding these programs to help these families who are incarcerated by in prison you know like or impacted by incarceration you know i'm like i would like to go back further but i mean while our incarceration rates are so high and it's going to continue to be for a while it just needs to get bigger we just need to be helping more and i do mm -hmm. want to say that like while the numbers are 10 to 12 the impact is so much more, you know, I mean, it, it only sounds like it is the 1% of who the women in the prison, but their families, all of everybody in that family is touched. Um, my family is my mother and my dad and the, the, you know, the other grandparents and the foster parents. And, and then also it trickles out more to the community. So just needs to, just needs to, you know, just more, more people to help. I just want to help more people. That's a beautiful thing. I mean, that's what we're all here for, ideally, is to spare to give than to receive. You know, the more you give, the more you get, in my opinion. And um, you're doing a great job. Um, looking forward to seeing what happens after this whole thing kind of gets taken care of and get back in legislature. Uh, but, I mean, yeah, this is a great cause. And uh, the FPP is a – there's nothing not to like about it. There's nothing to not like about FPP. And just the concept and just the mission statement is – exactly where we should be at right now and and for people that have children it shouldn't be a luxury to be able to actually spend quality time with the child if you're in prison it should be it should be a normality in my opinion absolutely um, it should definitely not be a luxury for a child to spend time with their parent yeah it's ridiculous mm -hmm. that's right and uh, but that's why we're focusing on fpp and uh again ashley i gotta thank you so much you've been an incredible guest uh look forward to maybe having you on the show again sometime if that's cool with you yeah, you guys are great. I really appreciate you two or three. Yeah, I mean, really appreciate like all the like people who are using using your freaking voices, and then you're bringing my voice into it too. So, well, thank you for being such a dynamic and bright guest, Ashley. Really, this was a fun conversation. I mean, fun, you know, relatively speaking. <laughs> yeah. It was a great conversation. It's really good to have you. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And I'm gonna keep listening. You guys got great podcasts. Yeah, yeah, keep tuning in. Don't forget, every Friday at 10 a.m., startupradionetwork.com, and uh, I'll be listening this Friday for sure. Uh, just got to say one more time, uh, while we're experiencing COVID-19, it's no joke. Please remember to contact uh, right people that you love that are in prison, people that you care about, your friends, 
yeah. um, accept the phone calls right now more than ever. It's imperative. Can't say that enough. Uh, it's tough for everyone right now, but especially so for people dealing with all this nonsense uh, currently incarcerated. Um, on that note, thank you so much to everyone online. Great job today. And uh, can't wait to see you next week. Peace. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.